This is the Black Hole Podcast with host Ryan Millsap. With a vision of how real estate could turn into movies and how movies could turn into money, Millsap set out to build the state's largest film complex. After checking that box, Millsap returned to his entrepreneurial roots, where real estate ventures, entertainment opportunities, nonprofit support, and golf course business deals rule the day. What's next for Ryan Millsap? Listen up, and you'll find out. Today on the podcast, I've got world-famous drag racer Don Garlitz. Known by his friends as Big Daddy, Garlitz is considered the father of drag racing. Best known for his remarkable innovations, Garlitz's biggest change was moving the engine to the back of the car. This design was officially called the Top Fuel Dragster. It was safer for the driver because the fuel was behind him, and with the equipment being in the rear, it allowed the driver to move away from any catastrophic failure more quickly. Drag racing isn't the safest sport out there. Some of these changes were spurred on by a traumatic childhood event that we'll talk to Don about in the podcast. Garlitz was the first drag racer to officially surpass 170 miles an hour, 180 miles an hour, 200, 240, 250, and 270 miles per hour in the quarter mile race. That's fast. I know he eventually went over 300 miles an hour. And he's been, not surprisingly, inducted into several car racing halls of fame, including, but not limited to, the Drag Racing Hall of Fame. Don is visiting me today in Atlanta, Georgia, from his home in Ocala, Florida, where he has developed the very impressive Don Garlitz Museum of Drag Racing. Try and visit if you get the opportunity. I'm honored to have him. Let's welcome Don Big Daddy Garlitz. So where'd you guys come from today? Ocala. Oh, you did? You flew up? No, we drove up. up. Oh, you drove up. Was that eight (laughs) hours? Uh, How long is that drive? Six hours. Six hours. Left this morning at six. Uh, Good for you. I love it. It said six hours. And there was no T&Ds on the interstate. (laughs) That was good. Good. Fantastic. Yeah. So being a race car driver, he got here an hour early. I'm not shocked to hear that. Well, at 300 miles an hour, the drive's a lot faster. Hey, thanks, Ryan, for making this happen. Hey, thank you. I'm, I'm excited. This is oh, great. Oh, they were going fast. We, <clears throat> we were running a steady 80, and they were blo- flying by us. Oh, that 80 is slow. There's a lot of 100-mile-an-hour drivers these days. You know, they just don't care. I think the cops don't enforce laws as much as they used to. Like, I, the, the police used to enforce. Like, they used to be so strict about speeding. It feels like... They've gotten more loose. I'll tell you a little story. I was on the interstate in Florida, and we're in the fast lane, and it was bumper to bumper, and we're running 90. And the three cars up was a Florida Highway Patrol in that lane of cars. Yep. And we went from this one exit to the next exit, and he exited, and so did I, because that's where he was coming off. So he went into a gas station. I just followed him in there, you know. And I went over to him, I said, how did you like that ride out on the interstate in the fast lane? He said it was sure intense, wasn't it? Funny, right? And I said, there's no way to do anything about that, is there, sir? He says, no. He said, I could cause a major pileup, kill people, 
And at the very least, I would block the interstation because the the light, the light flashing and the car stopped. It stops everybody. You know, That's they right. Just go to a crawl. Yep. Of so it's, it's really they got a, it's a problem. Yeah. Yeah. And they blew they blew by us several of them hundred miles an hour. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've I've done my share of hundred mile an hour driving. There's no doubt, but I try to keep it around ninety these days. I like to go fast, but I don't like anybody close to me when I'm doing it. That makes sense. That's a lot safer. Yeah, that's different than uh, the guys driving on tracks. Yeah, yeah I, I never did like round tack racing for that reason. Yeah, yeah, I could see that. I mean, they, it seems like there's a lot more chance of getting seriously injured. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because it's not just your driving and it's not just your car. But it's everybody else's car and everybody else is driving that puts you at risk. And drag racing, if you have a problem, it's your own fault. It's your own fault. Your, your mechanics, your work, your driving. Right. Although I've seen some uh, drag racing videos where one of the cars skiers out into the very other. Very rarely they do run into each other. Yeah, very rarely. I'm actually surprised that the, the, you know, the big, long, top-fuel dragsters with those little wheels in the front don't go in the wrong direction more often. They don't look like they're wonderfully maneuverable, which they probably are. They're probably just meant to go in a straight line. They're going for, that's for straight line. Yeah. Actually, Don was really big into creating, moving the engine from the front to the back. Yeah. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask him about that stuff because, well, I'll, I'll wait for some of this stuff sure, until we, sure. we get into the podcast. Are you recording? Just yeah. To, yeah, okay. We should record. Because you never know. Um, this will be good for me for now. Today on the podcast, we have Don Garlitz, who's a legendary drag racer. Don, welcome to the program. Nice to be here. We've also got his uh, producer who's working on a, a movie about his life, Mark Stemke. Yeah, thank you, Ryan. So, Don, at what age did you start dreaming about fast cars? Oh, gosh. <laughs> I can, my dad, I remember, was about six years old, and we just got a, a new 35 Ford. And uh, in those days, you drove down the highway about 35 miles an hour. That was about it, 40. And I'll never forget, we were riding along, and I'm standing up in the back. It's a two-door sedan. I'm standing up in the back seat between the, you know, between the seats, like, and I'm looking at the speedometer, and he says, Helen, that's my mother, he says, I'm going to show you 60 miles an hour. And he just stepped down on that little needle, just went from 40 right up to 60. And when it got to 60, she was screaming, slow down, you're going to kill us all. And I wanted to see that little needle go all the way to the 100. That's unbelievable. At six years old, and you I wasn't feel scared it. at all. That was the most exciting thing I'd ever done in my life up to that point. So how long did you have to wait from six years old to 100 miles an hour? Do you remember going 100 miles an hour for the first time? I went 100 miles an hour in my second car, which was a 40 Ford convertible with a Mercury motor. And that, that was a, you know, that came out of a heavier car. And that car would actually reach 100 miles an hour. And I, I drove at 100 miles an hour. That was my first time going that fast. How old were you? 18. 18 years old. Were you racing or were you just out driving fast? Yeah. Were you, were you racing that car against other people, or were you just yeah. driving yeah, it fast? I, I raced it in, the, in the, first, the first drags that we had in Florida in 1950. So you were drag racing cars 
1950. Yes. And so then when was your first dragster that you built from scratch just for drag racing? Well, it wasn't really a dragster at that point. It was a, a roadster. I had a 36 Ford for drag racing, but it was used as transportation also. But then I built a roadster just and towed it. In other words, it didn't get driven to the drag strip. They called it a flat tow, and I flat towed that to Lake Wales in 1954 and won my first top eliminator race. In other words, that won the whole race. I had won trophies earlier in my 54 just in stock class, but this was the first really big win was in that roadster. That was for pure drag racing. And that's like open racing. Anybody can show up. Are there any rules? It's no restrictions, or are there are restrictions? Well, the, the, they had the stock classes if your car wasn't modified, and then if you was modified, they called it modified. And then if it was like a roadster, uh, and uh, you know there wasn't any, there wasn't any dragsters yet. There was just the roadsters was the last class, and they were cut down real light, and they were run about thirteen and a half seconds in the quarter. And around 100 miles an hour in the quarter mile. And uh, I, then I took my body off of that roadster and moved the driver back behind the rear end. And I had a dragster. And that was the first one in Florida. And they, they didn't have a class for me. They said, well, you don't even have a body on it. it it's a dragster. And, uh, of course, they had dragsters in California already. and, and But that... Then the NHRA came down to uh, Lake Wales, uh, I'm sorry, Lake City, and had the Southeastern Championships in August of 1955. And I was in this little car club, and everybody had a fast car, you know, but I was the only one who had a dragster. There wasn't many dragsters around. And at that meet was about 10 dragsters from all over the Southeast, and everybody was there. So that's probably all the dragsters there were at that time. And I beat all the dragsters and got the dragster trophy. And then the dragster had to run the A-gas dragster, my own fuel, and I beat him. And then they, I had to run the fuel coupe, and I beat him, and that made me the top eliminator. In other words, I beat everybody that was at the race. And it was so funny because the club, I wasn't an officer or anything in the club. I was just a member. And so at the next meeting, my wife and I go to the club meeting. They've got a little tea set that they bought for us commemorating the win. Not one person in the club had won anything, and I won the whole meet. And so they called me up in front of the, all of the kids, you know, the guys and, and the wives, and uh give me this little tea set and, he, and the guys, the president says, I guess you'll retire now. <laughs> and I said, why would I do that? And he said, because you will never beat the Californians. Wow. And my wife was sitting in the back of the room and she thought to herself, it looks like he said the magic words because two years almost to the date from that meeting, in August of 1957, I went to Cordova with my Swamp Rat Dragster, which was now a Chrysler-powered car, and beat the world champion from California. Had never had a wheel put out in front of him. And it was who was so, that? In Cordova at the World Series. But who was the guy that had never? Cook and Bedwell. They held, they held the world record at 168.22 miles an hour, and they had never been outrun. And they had hired him to come back to this event for, you know, to, to 
in in uh, Cordova, Illinois, outside of Chicago, and uh, they, they everybody came to see him. I went to see him. I mean, he, I had his picture nailed up in my garage. He was my hero. And in the first round, they they said, you know, I had to race him, and and they thought that was going to be an easy run for him, you know. And but we run nine point nine six seconds, and they ran. 10.04 and that won't get it you know? and so I come we come back down the return road for the next round and the, the I was met by the president of the association Jim Ramona and he says in all fairness to the world champion we're going to have to see that run again come on yeah and so we you ran him again and outran him again love and, that and that really was good because that he, he couldn't say that it was just a fluke you know and it gave me all kind of inspiration inside that I had done that. And then we went back to Florida, and I changed my car completely around and made modifications to it. And in November of that year, I, I set the world record at 176, became the first car over 170 in the quarter mile. It was actually my springboard into being famous. And what year was that? 1957. 1957, you went 176 miles an hour. Yeah, first car. And they had see the, they had predicted Roger Huntington, which was an engineer in Detroit, automotive engineer. He did a lot of slide rule work, and he there was this, this is long before computers, you know, and he had predicted that 169 would be the absolute maximum that anybody would go in a quarter mile with rubber tires on pavement. And, and so for a long time, they didn't think that it was real because, you know, he had made that statement. But we went all over the country and went over 170 everywhere. And it, uh, I, I, I'm going to have to turn my phone off. Yeah, no problem. <laughs> it's off. Perfect. So this car that you drove 176 miles an hour in 1957... Did you build it from the ground up and drive it? Built everything. It was built from junkyard parts. And a 1931 Chevy frame rail, just the side rails, then I built all the rest of the stuff. And it was a 115-inch wheelbase and had an automotive rear and an automotive transmission in it and a 57 Chrysler Hemi, which became the standard of the industry. And that engine went for years until the head to 426 came out in 1964. And uh, that car was modified in, into several different configurations over a period of about six years. And we have the original car the way it was. It eventually went 180 without a supercharger. And with a supercharger, it, it did reach 204 miles an hour. And... Uh, I restored it, but when I restored it, I restored it back to the 180 configuration and then took it up to uh, Bristol and went 182 to show them that it, it could go that fast. You still have that car? Oh, yes. I have all my cars. That's unbelievable. When was the last time that car raced or, or was run? Um, it's been about 10 or 15 years now since I've run it. I took it on a tour in the 90s and went all over the country with it making runs with it, and then the, the NHRA didn't like that though, so much because it's a little dangerous. It, you know, the roll cage and everything is not like we have today, the safety. And uh, so, but, but I, never, I never felt uncomfortable in it because without the supercharger. Now, I wouldn't drive it fast with a supercharger because that's how I got hurt so bad in 1959. What happened there? 
I was at Chester, South Carolina in an event, and I was trying to set the world record, and the supercharger exploded in the, in the timing traps, and I had on just a leather jacket and no gloves, no face mask, and uh, it was horrible. I got out of the car. My, the skin just fell off my hands like gloves onto the pavement, and uh, I'd heard all these horrible stories, you know, about everything and about you didn't survive, and I didn't think I would, and uh, it was kind of, you know, I, my wife wasn't there, thank God, and I called her on the phone. They let, they dialed the phone for me at the hospital, and I told her she should come up to Chester to the hospital. I'd had a little small fire in the pits, and I'd probably be there a couple of days, and uh, I, I just wanted to be there with me, you know, and uh, she came up, and a nurse got her before she came in the room, and she said, if he makes it through the night, he may be may live and she had no idea it was anything like that so serious and she come in the room and she was just flabbergasted i was just burned to a crisp you know and i was there about six weeks in intensive care and my hands got worse and worse and the doctor he said he come in one day they're starting to get some red lines starting to come up my wrists he done band he just bandaged them up and put them in a and d ointment and uh he came into my room one morning. He said, I'm going to have to take your hands off. And I said, why? He said, because you're going to get blood poisoned and you'll die. I said, without my hands, doctor, I, I would rather be dead. So he went to my wife and he, he says, the man's delirious. We got to take his hands off. And he says, he doesn't want him to take them off. He'd rather die. And my wife says, and bless her heart, she said, if my husband says he'd rather die, he could, that's a, I'll go along with that. That's a good woman. And so the doctor said, you need to get him out of this hospital because I don't want him dying under my care. So my wife called the, the Tampa Municipal, which was, uh, it's now Tampa General, and she talked to the hospital administrator, and he said, you can bring him here because we always respect the patient's wishes and we'll keep him comfortable. So we got on a train and we rode to Tampa and I walked into the ER and this is, this is unbelievable. I walked into the ER and the, Dr. Cullen met me and he unbandaged my hands and he took, and they were just charred and just like this and horrible looking. And he took the little finger and he just straightened it right out and the blood popped out of it. And he took the other one and it straightened it out and the blood popped out of it. And he said, get this man up to surgery. He's got good circulation. Wow. And six weeks I was in there and the skin, he, he fixed it all back. He fixed my face and everything. And uh, have to excuse me, I'm sorry. A heck of a story. He, he finally come into the six weeks. He came into the room. He said, "There's a couple little spots on your hand. If I kept here another couple of weeks, he probably heal." But he said, "If you wear gloves, he says it'll probably heal just fine in the field." And he says, "I know you want to get back to work." And I said, "Thank you so much." What a legend! And this was such a wonderful doctor. And I. I'll go to my grave believing that, that God sent him to me. Clearly. He had done 5,000 pair of hands from Korea. 
Come the on. Tank, from the tank burns. He was really experienced. Wow. I wonder if there's anybody even that experienced alive today. I have right? Because I mean, probably the, not. I wouldn't think so. I mean, here's the here's the part that's just mind boggling. The track had never paid the insurance for that event, and so there was no insurance. So the Chester Hospital sent their bill to the Tampa Municipal Hospital to combine with their bill to send to me. And I got the bill for the whole thing. 12 weeks intensive care and all of that work. And you would never in a million years tell me what you think it was. What year was this? 1959. 1959. I'm going to guess that this miraculous doctor who was sent from heaven to take care of your hands probably wrote down a lot of the bill too. I'm guessing he charged you a thousand dollars. It was more than that. It was sixteen hundred. Wow. That was the total bill for both hospitals. It's incredible. And it, obviously they knew what they were doing. I mean they couldn't do any better today. There's no chance. I mean your hands look perfectly normal like they've never well, been burnt I mean, to look a crisp. What I've done with them and look at, you know, I have a museum just full of my work. It's I mean I I couldn't have done it without my hands. I mean, think about all of those hours of work that your hands were able to do post all those surgeries. What a gift. It is. It is. What's that doctor's name? Do you remember? Dr. Cullen. Dr. Cullen. And he's probably, is he not alive anymore? Oh, no. He'd be be passed a long time ago. What incredible when you run into people that, that have that kind of an impact on your life. But, you know... To think, just walk into the hospital on the street. Now you go for a pre-op and you get all the... They hadn't even got my name yet. They had no idea. You were coming coming from a doctor who said you were going to die. How amazing is that? You have one doctor who says, if you keep these hands on, you're going to die. You go into another hospital and this doctor who's clearly like more of a specialist in the area says, oh, man's got circulation. Let's go take care of him. Miraculous. It is. So you've lived this incredibly miraculous life. How did that change your life? How did that change well, your perspective? It, it, it just, you know, it, it told me that this is what I should be doing because you know, I, I got back and, and I, this young guy came and drove the car for me for a year while I got my hands, got back in shape, and then I got back in the, in the car and, and then I had all kind of ideas for new cars and I built built a, a, a better car then, Swamp Rat 3, and um, went on to set more records. What were some of the ideas, like the transformative ideas? So S- Swamp Rat 1, do you remember some of the key ideas to Str- Swamp Rat 1 that made it so? Oh, yeah. I, I know exactly what it was. Tell me. It was fuel delivery. It was, we run on nitromethane, and in those days it was a little half-inch pipe came out of the fuel tank through a fuel valve and into a fuel block, and then the hoses come out of the block and went to the carburetors. And the cars would go down the course about halfway, and then you hear them go, and then they'd pick back up. And that's how he went 168. And uh, I asked him, I asked 
Mr. Cook, Emery Cook, the driver, what was he doing? He said, well, you have to pump the pressure back up when you get about halfway down so you get the pressure up and get the fuel into the carburetors. And so I thought, well, what would happen if, you know, in my mind I'm thinking, what would happen if I could just get the fuel to the carburetors all the time down the track and didn't have to pump that the pump halfway down? And so the and so I'm looking here, and you got, and I was going to go to eight carburetors. He were on six, so here we have had six lines coming out of this fuel block, three eights. Now I'm going to go to eight lines. How am I going to feed eight lines with a little half inch hose coming from the fuel tank through a little half inch valve? But that's all they sold. So I went to the to the down to the company that make they sell gas valves. And I found this great big valve. It's a ball valve with a great big opening through the center. And I ran a great big inch and a half line like a radiator hose to that valve and then that big hose to the fuel block and this great big square fuel block with eight hoses coming out of it. So now I had the same pressure on those eight hoses all the way down the course that I had leaving the starting line because the volume was able to get through those big hoses. And and that just went 176, just like that, you know, just transformed. And then 180 a year later, same mm. configuration. But I knew that was a trick, so I, I built this complete undercarriage body on the car and painted everything flat black inside there so you couldn't actually see it. And then the hoses, it was real tight. You can see the pictures of the car. The hoses come out of this one section. You just can't hardly see in there. So for one full year... You did I that on purpose so nobody could see what you were doing. And they didn't know what I was doing. They didn't know that was there. And then this, this guy from Detroit was the first guy that saw that, but it was too late because they within three months we were on superchargers and a whole different fuel system. But So I had that trick fuel system for a whole year. Nobody knew it. That's Swamp Rat 1. Yeah. How about Swamp Rat 2? Two? Two, all the two cars were gas cars that my brother had. He had five gas cars, and he called them. And the reason he called it two, it was like T-O-O. Ah, got it. Because Swamp Rat the Swamp Rat name came from this guy from Detroit. He put an ad in Drag News, and it said, it's no wonder they call you the Swamp Rat. You're in this sport for what you can get. You don't care who you hurt just as long as you make a buck out of it. And I got real mad about it. But there was a guy making a little movie about drag racing hanging around the shop. And he says, that's a neat name, Swamp Rat. See, rats don't really live in swamps. It's too wet for them, you know. And so he had his artist draw this little Swamp Rat mouse thing with a checkered flag. And that became our trademark. And I use it to this day. And uh, so... Keep my going. brother says we put so I put Swamp Rat one on a car, and my brother says, "Well, I'm a Swamp Rat two. Uh, <laughs> so we painted Swamp Rat two on his car. So my next car was three Swamp Rat three. Okay, so what what about Swamp Rat three made the difference? We we got away from the automotive chassis, and I was the first guy that built a chrome molly tubing frame for lightweight and better strength. And so there was three Swamp Rat 3s, and they all had the chromoly tubing and a little longer wheelbase. And, of course, we're always getting the, you know, making the engines better. And we got away from the transmissions. They were all high gear. And those cars reached, was the first in the sevens and also really almost got officially over 200. They went 199 miles an hour. 
real time. See, it was two different kind of clocks back in those days. The the Crondex, which were the accepted clocks for NHRA, and then a cheaper clock, which they bought out of Chicago, called a Fostic timer, and they weren't near as accurate. And and that's how the the 204 was achieved by the Swamp Rat 1 was on Fostic timer. So we're really a little dubious about that time. Okay, so what comes after Swamp Rat 3? Swamp Rat 4? Four, and that was a gas car. In 1961, I went to work for Chrysler, and uh, they had me come up there and, and wanted me to do some R&R for them, and they gave me a, a Dodge, uh, what they called a, a uh, drag pack car. It's, it was, a, it was a, ma- a max wedge car. They had come out with that new engine. It got away from the Hemi, and they gave me this car to work. And then they also wanted me to build an engine a gasoline engine and go to the U.S. Nationals and compete because the NHR had banned nitromethane for several years, and uh, so NH the Dodge wanted me to be there at the Nationals in 1962. So we put this car together called a Swamp Rat Four gasoline car, and uh, we went to Indy, and that's where the Big Daddy name came from. I go up there, and I'm 30 years old. And I got my two little toddlers with me. But the gayest guys were all uh, sportsman cars, mostly. The, the professionals ran the nitromethane. And there were several other organizations still running nitromethane at the time. And, but I'm there on, on gas, and it wasn't doing too good because, the, the, you know, I didn't know much about gasoline. My brother was the gasoline guy, but he was home running the shop, and I'm here running this car, you know. He should have been active running it, but I was the one hired by Chrysler. You know, I had, I had the name. And so they started to make fun of me, and they said, oh, there's Daddy over there with his little kids up here trying to compete with us, but he's gotten too old. Now I'm 30 years old, right? And of course, they're in their early 20s, and uh, and so now even the, the announcer's starting to say it. I'm coming up to the line. I was having lots of trouble with everything. I, sometimes it wouldn't even make a run. And, uh, and, they, and the announcer was saying, here comes Daddy. Let's see what he's going to do this time. Oh, too bad, Daddy. Go back and try it again. And it's just everybody's having a laugh, you know. And uh, Connie Coletta came over to me, was a good friend of mine, dear friend, and in those days, it, we didn't have any crews or nothing. It was just me and my wife and the two kids and him and his wife and his kid. And Coletta says to me, would you make a run in my car and let me hear it run? He says, it's got a funny little sound down there, and I can't tell what it is. I, I need to hear it from outside the car. And in those days, you, there was no licenses. You could just jump in anybody's car you wanted to. So he was my buddy. I jumped in his car and zinged down through there and set the world record on gas because he was 100 pounds heavier than me. I took 100 pounds out of his car, and, of course, it went faster immediately, and it was a Hemi car, not like the wedge car that I had. And so the announcer says, well, we're going to have to call him Big Daddy from now on. He just set the world record. And uh, incidentally, I have that car in my museum, too. I purchased it. When they got through with it, I bought it for the museum. and uh, But I did take that Dodge car, and I was runner-up at the event with it. I got it tuned up before before the meet was over, and actually went all the way to runner-up with it. 
So wait, it, so did you, you got first place and second place? That that well, that's that's you know there was the last two cars of the event, and I got beat by the final car. Oh, I see. So so you set a record in the other in in the in buddy's the other guy's car. car. And then you went back and got second place in your own car. What happened to his car? If his car was the fastest car, he went back in it and then couldn't win because he was 100 pounds heavier? Well, when we, I actually raced him in the race, and, and my car outran him. I was, my car was quicker. It didn't run as high a mile per hour, but it was, it was very quick. And I outran him in the eliminations. But do you think that was because of his extra 100 pounds? Like if well, you would have been... Probably had something to do with it. Well, and the driver. What 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 amount of what amount of impact does the driver have on a drag race? A lot, a lot. He has a lot of impact because it, it's a short race. It doesn't last long, so the reaction time is very serious. And so, a guy with good reaction time can usually win. And today, they're, they're only three and a half seconds. So you can imagine how serious the reaction time is. But it was serious then, too. And, of course, in those days, the weight was serious because they weighed the cars. They didn't weigh the drivers. Today, the drivers weighed with the car so that it, you can only be so light. So that weight is not a factor anymore because all the cars weigh the same. And if the driver's too light, they have to put the weight in the car. Just oh, there's like no advantage. There's no, there's no advantage. It's like a horse. Yeah. yeah. Do they do that with jockeys? I, didn't, I don't think I realized that. Do they when they they weigh in the jockeys? Do they make all the jockeys and horses saddle everything weigh the same? Yeah, they remember they get on the scales and the the guy they so many pieces of lead in the saddle bag, right? To I, make it the same, yeah. I don't think I ever put those pieces together before. Right now, that they were weighing the jockeys in order to make all the jockeys and the gear weigh the exact same on every single horse. Yeah, yeah. and they started doing that with racing in the sixties. The seventies. That was when Shirley Muldowney came in. She was a hundred. She only weighed like ninety pounds, and so she had a definite weight advantage. And the guys complained so bitterly about it. And she and, and they wouldn't if she hadn't started winning races. They wouldn't have said nothing, you know. But she was really good, and so she started winning races. And the guys really complained bitterly. So that the following year. NHRA said the driver will be the weight will be determined by the driver setting in the car. So let's go back to the '60s. Who were your biggest like your 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 competitors where you're going head to head where you feel like that the biggest rivalries of the '60s for you? Chris Caramasini's out of Chicago. Uh, then uh, Seto Pastorian out of Detroit. Uh, Don Perdome out of California. These were the top fuel cars that. I had to compete with Tommy Ivo. He was another well-known car. But the Perdome and uh, Caramacinas, these were the really fast fuel cars. Postoian had a real bad wreck in 1960, and then uh, he was gone. He didn't come back. He didn't kill him, but he, he had a silver plate put in his arm, and the doctor told him he better never drive again or he'd lose his arm. But he was a tough guy. So that Don Perdome car had an engine in the front. Yeah, these are all slingshots. All, yeah, and and that car I've seen up close. Um, I had two wonderful business partners, Evan Meyer and Dushan Militic. Now, their fathers, uh, Dushan's father was Vel Militic, 
and he had um, Vels Parnelli Jones Racing, but they were oval racers and and uh, and road racers. But then Evan's father, Bruce Meyer, is a huge car collector in California, and he has Don Prudhomme's dragster in his collection in his museum. Okay, is that is that the collection up to the the Super Snake? Is that the dragster? Is that the guy that's a that's a up around Monterey. Well, he takes that. He's taken a lot of cars up to Monterey, but his main museum is in Beverly Hills. Okay, I, I, that may be another snake car then. Okay, the one up in Monterey, the big museum in Monterey, the uh, the guy up there that has that—that's the uh, the overhead cam car from the snake, the super snake car. I mean, look, I was looking at this earlier because I wanted to try to remember exactly how it looked, and it looks like this right here. It's a, yeah, that's the Greer Black and Prudhomme car. That's that it. That was Snake's first big winning car. Yeah. That's when he actually drove for Keith Black and um, Greer. He didn't own that car. Later, he owned his own cars. There but you that's, go. That's, that, that's a world-famous car right there. That's a world-famous car. Yeah. There were a bunch of years this car was unstoppable, right? I think we're one of the few cars with Swamp Rat 3 that ever outran it. I love this. Do you remember we when it race, was? We only raced, I think, one time. Okay. At Long Beach. At Long Beach? Yeah. Long Beach had a drag strip? Yeah. Where was that? Down there by the harbor. That's gone now. It's all there, but they don't have... The drag strips and all there, but they don't... It's all closed. It's all closed. The, the people got it closed up. Wow. Okay, so it, the, the, the 60s, you have a lot of competition, but you're going head-to-head with all these guys... And Swamp Rat Three is winning a lot. Yes, Swamp Rat Four. What? When is that? When that was the gayest car. That was just one year, and then I went right to five, which was a fuel car, and I went out to California in '63 and won the, the NHRA Winter Nationals. That was the first race that they brought back nitromethane, and I won the event. Why'd they get rid of nitromethane? It was silly. Because when Cook and Bedwell went 166 at Lions, it scared them. And they thought that that was just a little too fast f- for these cars to be running. They, they were used to cars around 150. The, when they, it was a big deal when the, uh, the uh, car went 150 miles an hour. The, uh, it was a, the bustle bomb, the twin engine car. And, and, they thought, well, we're getting pretty close to the as fast as they can go. And then the, the bedwell and them come out and went 166. And they says, oh, my God, how are we going to deal with this? And so Mickey Thompson was part of the deal that they all sat down. And he ran the, the Long Beach at the time. Says, we just need to ban nitromethane. But that wasn't a good idea because there was these other associations, the American Hot Rod Association, California, the DRI, uh, in Chester, South Carolina, where I got hurt, the International Hot Rod Association, International Timing Association, and they continued to run nitro. So the nitro cars just went to the other associations. They didn't want it. It was fun. We loved nitromethane. We want to give it up. It's the most potent motor fuel in the world for an internal combustion engine. And so, but they struggled along with that. 
for several years, and in 1963, they said, we're going to have a, a test race. So they, the Winter Nationals had an eight-car field for nitromethane. But they tried to emphasize the gas, make the gas the big deal. But you can't do that. I mean, when the cars are going so much faster and the noise and the smell, the people just love the, the fuel. So the following year in 64, it was nitromethane at all the national events, which was only like three events, the spring nationals, the winter nationals, and the nationals. And, and so how are you guys doing now that you're back to nitromethane? How how's the how the car is doing? How are you competing? What are the big milestones? Are you winning national championships? Well, they didn't they didn't have a national championship yet. There was, there was no no thing about points and racing all the races. It just you just won the national event. And that was all there was to it. So the AHRA was the same way, but the AHRA was the first ones that decided to have a series, they called it the Grand American Series of Professional Drag Racing. And so they actually put together their, their event, like 10 events for a whole year, and you competed through these events, and the one guy that won the most events that gave you the most points became the world champion. I won that 10 times for the AHRA because I had a head start on the NHRA because they were, were gayest, you know, for a while. But then the NHRA brought their first big one was the 1975 that they had the, the world championship, and I won that one. That was an interesting race too because I was a big AHRA guy, obviously, you know, and always supported them. In other words, I didn't support NHRA when they had the gayest; only rent to the the one race. So <laughs> in 1975, they. They announced they were going to have a $25,000 purse for the world champion of all the 10 races. And so the final race was the world finals at Ontario, California. And uh, I came into that race. I was 400 points down, and it was almost impossibility. It was, it was mechanically possible for me to win the race, I, but I had to set the low ET. And it had to be a record. I had to set the top speed. It had to be a record, and I had to win the race. And so, I had I was working for Goodyear at the time too. I got Goodyear into drag racing. I told them I went to the company and told them you need to get into drag racing because there's a lot of money to be made here, and they weren't paying much attention to it. You know, so they went to a couple of races with me and said there is some money to be made. So I worked with Goodyear real close with the tire development. So at the U.S. Nationals in 75, I would go down to the big tire trailer and look at all the tires, and they'd have, they'd have me look at them, and I, I could pick out some of the ones I wanted for myself I, before anybody got to even see the tires. And How so, much difference is there between tires? Well, there's a lot. It's, for some reason, when they come out of the mold, they, they are different heights from the, the cord layout. they Not anymore, but this was in the beginning when there was still things to be f figured out about the racing tires, the, the wrinkle walls, you know. And so they would air them up. They had a special device they could air them up on without mounting them on rims. And here was a set was 36 inches tall. 
and everybody, all the rest were 34 and a half to 35. I said, set those tires aside. I'm taking them with me back to Florida. So I took them to Florida, and I won that race too, by the way, the, the, the 75 Nationals. And I carried these tires. And you back. did all the things you needed. You set the speed record. You won the race. But now you set the- we're getting to the Ontario race. Yeah, but yeah, okay. They, they made up a race because I was winning. They hated it. They made up a race in in uh, uh, in Seattle, Washington, at the track out there, and put it right on top of the IHRA World Finals. And I was booked at the World Finals to race. I mean, I, it was a big contract with me with the IHRA. That is a ten race series, and I got ten thousand a race to show up. So they knew I wasn't going to be breaking. Plus, I don't break contracts. So they knew I would be there. But Gary Beck, which was trailing me in the points at the IHRA, he didn't get paid like that. So they made this race up in Seattle, and Gary Beck broke his contract with IHRA and went to Seattle, and that's how he got the 400 points ahead of me. So I had these special tires, and I had taken them back to Florida, and I'd pumped them up. And left them pumped up, and they'd got even bigger over this period of several months waiting for the world finals. So I carried those out there to California with me, and I built this special engine because I knew that those tires would need more power. We couldn't do it with a gear, see, there was no gear ratios. I already had had 340s special made. And most everybody else had 354 ratio gears, which is what were normal. But I had had special gears made, and it was very expensive to have gears made. But now here, these tires would even give me a taller gear. So I knew I was going to have to have a special motor. So I built this special motor and had that in the trailer, and I go out to California, and I make a run with these tires, and it sets low ET. It was uh, like a... 671, but Gary Beck meant 669, and uh, that was a record. But it's who has the record when the race is over. And so his, but he had a 71 behind it, so his 69 was backed up. But I had a 71, and then I went 249 30, which would back up, and that was the record at the time. So, in other words, I made a run exactly the same as the record, which would be a nice backup for like a 250. And then I had the 571, which would be a backup for something below Gary Beck. So we went, we headed back to the hotel and I told my wife, I said, the stage is set. I'm going to put the big engine in for tomorrow. So I put the big engine in and it rained that morning and it didn't look like it was going to do anything. And I saw the sun peek out. And I said, oh, it's going to dry up. So we got the car out of the trailer. As soon as I got out of the trailer, everybody else got out of the trailer, you know. We warmed it up. And we go up to the starting line with it. And the, and all my racing friends knew what was going on. And they were so nice to me. I, I couldn't believe it. We would flip for lane choice in those days for the qualifying lane. <laughs> And they would, every one of them would just give me whatever lane I wanted. They said, take whatever lane you want, Don. And uh, so here it is. <coughs> they had just blown up in this left lane. And uh, we flipped the coins. 
and I lost the toss. And I said, I got this special engine in my car. I really need that good lane. And the, and the guy, my good friend, he says, Don, he says, this is the last qualifying attempt. You're in the show. He says, I'm not in the show. This is my last chance to get in the show. I said, I understand. So we fired him up on the rollers, and we went up there. And I looked at it. It was just white as this, the black. They put so much rice ash down, you know. And uh, I made my burnout, and I backed up, and there wasn't anybody in the other lane. So I looked at the starter, and he says, the guy broke. And I said, I want to go over there. Mm -hmm. And so he calls the control tower, and they say, no, he's got to run that lane right there. And I went up, I pulled up there, i never forget it, and I, I didn't stage, I just took a good look at it, and I says, God, should I shut this thing off? And I said, well, we're going to go into the elimination tomorrow. Maybe I'll just stand on it on this new motor, and the moment that I feel the tire slip, I'll back off of it. And that, but I'll at least get a start on this motor for the race tomorrow because it's going to be the last qualifying attempt. And I stepped out on that thing, and the front end come up about like that, and I mean it was on a run. And it, it wouldn't come down. The front end wouldn't come down. And I, st I stayed on it, you know, and I I started to just pull the brake a little bit, and and but it wasn't coming up any higher, and it was really moving right all through this. I couldn't believe it. It wasn't spinning at all. And it, come, and it come out of the rice ash where the white was, and I'm on the black pavement now, and the, and the front end settled down, and the wheels had never turned on the front of that car yet. And when it hit, it was like a Piper Cub land, and the two little rooster tails of smoke come off the front tires, and that baby was on one. Went 250.69, 5.63 seconds. I had the speed record, but the, I'd went too quick for the ET. In other words, my 71 did not back up the 63, so I'm going to have to make another run in the race a little better than 71 to get the 63 backed up. So what does that mean, backed up? Like you have to have two runs that are close be, enough together. A run, two runs within one percent of each other. Because otherwise, 1%. they say it was an anomaly. They, they don't, don't do that anymore. If you make the run, it's a record. It's a record. But it used it to be they didn't want you to have. In those days, the the the, the timing equipment sometimes did funny things. There's it's more accurate now. Mm. So anyway, in the eliminations, it's so funny about the backup runs. The second round, and I never run good in the first round. I always have my car a little soft because you never know about the track. And a lot of guys throw the race away by spinning the tires in the first round. So I always make the first run just a little soft to make sure that I get down there. So the second run, you make a good run. So I have to, I'm up against the Kentucky Moonshine car, which is a really fast car out of Kentucky. These are some rough boys from down there, and they don't call them Kentucky Moonshiners for nothing. And uh, and the doc and and the guy comes over that drives a car, big tough guy, you know, and he says, "What do you want us to do, Big Daddy?" I said, "What are you talking about?" He says, "He says we know what they're trying to do to you here. We want you to win this race. Shall we? Shall we lose fire on the rollers, or you want us to red light, or 
or just shut the motor off? What would you like us to do? And I said, Dale, Dale Funk was his name. I said, Dale, I don't know what you've ever heard about me, but I've never thrown a race. I said, I want the best car to win. And his tears rolled out of this man's eyes. And he said, Big Daddy, that's why you're my hero. Robert, put the nitro in it. The old man wants to race. <laughs> and they put the nitro in it, and we ran the fastest side-by-side in the history of the sport. I went 565, and they went 571, and my 65 backed up the 63. And then next round, Gary Beck got outrun, and I was the world champion. That's a great, great story. Yeah. And that's 19, wait, that's 75? That my most exciting race. Is that 1975? 1975 World Finals, Ontario, California. Ontario, California. A lot of great drag The record races. stood for seven years. Seven and years I, before I somebody the beat a 563. the museum with the unrestored car that did it. They sent me the clocks from the tower. That's great. Yeah. How big is this museum you have? I mean, Ryan, you need to go down there and see it for sure. You know, it's beautiful. He's got all the cars. He has all the cars that are put in, uh, you know, that he's collected over the years. That he actually went back and yeah, got I have all other the cars. other people's cars too, yeah, but I've kept all of mine. Well, the museum is probably, I'd say, Don. What would you say on the uh, thirty on, acres? How many the museum acres stretches over thirty acres. How many square well, feet of mostly under it's fields? We have sixty-five thousand square foot of buildings. Oh, that's what I was wondering. Sixty-five thousand square foot of buildings started with fifteen. Well, listen. I mean, I've seen. Beautiful 8,000 square foot museum. So 65,000 square feet of cars is a lot of cars. It's amazing. That is fantastic. Okay, so this is 1975. What happens next? What comes after 1975? Well, I boycotted the NHRA in 76 and wouldn't run for them. Why? Because they, they tried to cheat me like that. They took points away from me during the year and everything. It was awful. So I boycotted them for a year. Just ran for IHRA. And then, but so then now, in 77, so I came back and went back to run for him. And how'd 77 go? <laughs> 77 wasn't too good. I, I was experimenting with the Donovan aluminum engine. I, I won some races. I still won the AHRA championship, but I didn't win the NHRA. In 78, I, I won the, the U.S. Nationals with that Donovan engine. And the, the runner-up was the... Uh, Kelly Brown, he had a Donovan, too, and it was so funny. The guys all made a joke. They said, Brown was one and Garlitz was two, but nobody brought a 392. They liked the 426. They were better. They were stronger motors. You know, Dodge built that engine to, uh, I should say Chrysler, built it to go 500 miles full throttle, and they wanted to make as much horsepower on the last lap as it did on the first lap. And the only way you can do that, the engine has to be extremely strong so it holds all its integrity. And so because of that configuration, we were able to really lean on that motor hard. Today, that configuration makes 11,500 horse for a few moments. And that's the only reason because it was built so strong back in the 63 and 64 when they were developing it. Are you saying that motor still runs today? Like there, there, there are still guys running that same motor? Yeah, the, the, the top fuel and funny cars still run that configuration. They do. They don't make them anymore. They make yeah. their own. Yeah, sure. But that, but that but configuration. You can take the 
heads off of a 1964 Dodge Hemi and bowl right on John Force's funny car. Is that right? Yeah, the bolt pattern, you put the crank in there, everything. It's the same configuration. And how fast in, were those cars? Did I hear you in 1975 say 250 miles an hour? That doesn't seem right. Is that, Today? It, no, no, 1975, when you won it at 5.63 well, seconds. seven years before they reached 250. Seven years before. So you guys were racing at what? How, how many miles an hour were you hitting to get to They, a, they were running between 245 and 249. That was the highest they would go. Back then. And that was only, that was only on once in a while. But we're talking 1975. Yeah. Okay. So, but, but then that, it took seven years to get that last 10 miles an hour. Or whatever to get to 250. Well, by seven years from from 1975, they finally broke the record and they they went over went 252 miles an hour. 252 because you set the record. 563 because you went over 250 for the first time. Or no? Yeah. How how fast did you go in 1975? 250.6. That's what I thought. That's what I thought you said. Okay. So you did go seven years for them to reach that for somebody else. Yeah. Okay, that's what I was wondering. Okay, that, now I'm understanding. Yeah, I went I, I th- home and took the motor out of the car and hit it. Is that right? Yeah, because it, I didn't want anybody to know how to do that because it was, it was hard on the motor. In other words, if you had that motor like that, it's going to cost you a lot to race. I mean, you're going to go faster, but you're going to pay for it. And I had to make my money. I had to make a living racing. And I did a lot of match racing. I didn't want to have to be putting new motors in all the time. So I just put that motor under the bench and covered it up and told the guys in the shop, don't bother that motor. Don't talk about it. What's match racing? Well, I would be hired by some little drag strip somewhere, two out of three to race Shirley or the Greek or Tommy Ivo. You win three times, and uh, three times, and uh, two out of three is the winner. Best two out of three, just a straight up mono e mono. Yeah, and uh, there's no trophy. You know, it's just a just a money race. Once in a while, they ha- like one time the CBS had a battle of the sexes at Orange County, and they had some trick trophies for that for me and Shirley. But usually, there's no trophies involved. It's just a big check, and then probably a lot of side bets. There's a lot of side bets going on, like we, you know, people making oh, in bets. the stands? Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> right? I mean, it's got to be part of the, yeah. right? I mean, when drag racing started, was it the 40s or the 50s, really? I mean, when was it? The late, late 40s. Late 40s. California. California. Didn't guys used to race for keys, and they, that was kind of part of, like, the lore, you know, where they'd do crazy stuff with their cars, and they'd say, you know, here we are on Main Street, Mono e mono, winner takes the, the other guy's car, or is that just lore? Well, but the guys used to go before they had the official drag races. They this happened on the streets. That's what I'm talking about. And we would go. We in Tampa, we had some streets and uh, that went to nowhere that were built during the boom. You know, it's going to be a housing development out there, and the contractor put the big road, and then it there's nothing down there. So we'd put somebody at the start of the road that would sit there. And so nobody would come down there, and then we'd go down and race. 49th Street in St. Petersburg was one place. Beers Avenue in Tampa was another. These are all developed now. You can't do that. But car culture back then, how did car culture in Florida, you think, compare to California? California obviously was the leader. Well, in the 40s, the car culture was all the the hot rods. They come, you know, before the war, they, they raced on the dry lakes, 
but they didn't have any drags yet, and they raced on the salt flats. Then they come back from the war, and then they raced on the streets, and they finally got that first drag strip there at uh, Santa Ana, which was a side road on the on the airport or the John Wayne Airport. And, and that, that was, was the number one. That was the first that drag was the strip first, in the country. A big official drag strip that I know. There's probably some that people don't know about, but that was the one that we we heard about. Hmm. Santa Ana. Okay, so now let's jump back to we passed 1975. What's the next biggest milestone for you as a as a drag racer? Well, the, the, be, let's go back. Let's regress a little bit to 1970 okay. when I had the terrible accident at Long Beach and a transmission exploded and we're all sitting behind the, the engines and it cut off part of my right foot. And then I drew this rear engine car while I was in the hospital and then we came home and I'm in a wheelchair and we're building this rear engine car. And, Wait, uh, how much of your foot did it take off? Just from the metadorsal forward was removed on the right. Which is like right here, you know, all the all the bones that go out to the toes. Do you lose all your toes? All the toes, yeah. All gone. Just a nub down there. So I walk with a limp. So we're designing this rear engine car. Now there had been rear engine cars, but they were very squirrely. They didn't drive good. They run off the drag strip. But I, I went to Indy in, in sixty four and I watched that little rear engine Cooper. Parnelli? Run, run with Parnelli. Parnelli had the Roadster, and I think it was Jim Clark mm-hmm. in the Cooper. Mm-hmm. And he was getting around maneuvering at, at 200 miles an hour with that rear engine car. So surely to God, we could go straight yeah. for a quarter of a mile. But we got it all was put that together. 60, and I'll 64, tell you what, was that, it, it was, didn't go straight. I mean, I'm off the drag strip. For three months, I struggled with that thing. And... uh Everybody was getting on to me. Goodyear called me up. I'll never forget. They said, Don, don't you know that every rear engine car that's ever been built turned right or left in the traps? So we got a lot of money in you. We don't want nothing happening to you. And then the Chrysler, they were giving a seminar. One of the guys in the audience, it was a seminar about stock cars. And the guy said, this question isn't about stock cars. We want to know what you think about that engine project that Garlitz has got going. And the head guy in the engine department, Tom Hoover, that designed the 426, he said, at Chrysler, we have the utmost respect for what Garlitz has done. He said, it's incredible. But this time... We think he's bit off more than he can chew. And so when, about, when are these guys going to know to stop baiting you? So three months into the, into the testing, we set it aside, and we snapped together my new slingshot for 71. I mean, this is a trick thing, lightweight and nice, you know. And the wife comes out of the office, and we're, I'm putting the body panels on it, and she says, what is that? I said, well, that's my new car. I said, in four weeks, I got to be in California. My HRA contract starts. She said, you would get back in one of these things after it's mutilated you like that? I said, honey, it doesn't have a transmission. She says, six of your friends were killed in these cars in the last two years, and none of them had a transmission. 
She says, there's a hundred things back there that kill you. Now get back on that engine project. <laughs> what a woman. So we, the, the amazing we, we, thing. Do, we mess around with it. We go over next day. We go to the drag. I had this drag strip. I had the keys and everything because the guy got so sick of coming out there every day and opening it up for me. They just, you just take the keys. You know what to do. And we didn't even take the clocks down. We just left the time and stuff all up, you know. So it went off the drag strip again. So we're coming back, and I'm not driving. I'm just sitting over in the passenger seat, and Connie Swingle's driving. And I said, if I didn't know better, I'd say the steering was too fast. But that can't be it because we put the steering on this car right off of the slingshot exactly the way it was on the slingshot. And Swingle said, this ain't a slingshot. This is a front driver. If you think the steering's too fast, let's slow it down. So we went home that night. We made the little arms to the spindles longer and the little arm off of the steering shorter. Slowed it like from six to one, maybe to ten. And went back the next day. You wouldn't believe it. It was straight as a string. And what was so good, it went 6.86 seconds ET. And the track record was 6.85 by the Ram Chargers, the baddest ET car in the land. And we weren't even trying to make a hard run. We couldn't get in the trailer fast enough and get to California. It was so funny. So now I got this real nice slingshot sitting here on the stand. What am I going to do with it? This is nobody's going to want it, right? Because I'm going to go out to California and everybody's going to want rear engine cars if I win, and it's probably going to win. And the phone rings. It's Goodyear. They said, we got a problem. We got a big car show in in uh, Los Angeles at the Coliseum, and the dragster can't be there. Do you have a dragster? I said, I do. I said, I have this brand new slingshot. We just finished it up. I said, I could put a dummy motor in it. They said, what would you want for it? I said, 7,500. Good. How much to take it to California? I said, another 2,500. Good. We'll send you the money, 10,000. Get it to the Coliseum. So we took the rear engine car all apart, and we put the body panels on the floor wrapped in blankets. The spare engine became the engine rack for the rear engine car. We didn't go to California that year where the spare engine just had the engine in the car. And we hung the frame up in this little small trailer and the extra wheels were stacked in the corner and, and the rear and stuff, you know. But the slingshot set, this is a little small pull along. This ain't the big trailers like we have today, you know. And so we go out to California. We go to Waterman's first, his, the engine shop, pull in there in the middle of the night and and he said, you got the engine car? I said, yeah, it's right out here. Let's see it. So I opened the little door, and I have a flashlight, and I just shine in here on the slingshot. And they all laughed. Oh, good, good. We knew it wasn't going to work. And I shut the door, you know. And we went over to the Coliseum and gave them the, the sling. We put it in the show. And then we went and got a good night's sleep and headed out to the track. So we get to the track the next morning, and the president of the AHRA, Jim Tice, who has, I'm under a $10,000 uh, event contract, 
sees me, comes right over. He's out on the gate, you know, where they're taking in the money. He says, you got the engine car? I said, yes, sir, Mr. Tice. Let's see it. And I opened up the door. He said, where is it? I said, that's the frame right there. And the body panels are wrapped in those blankets. The engine's in the rack. And there's the rear and the two tires over there. And I mean, he got mad. He said, this is the Grand American Series of Professional Drag Racing and you bring this crap out here to race? I, I explained to him that, you know, we brought the slingshot and, and we're going to put it together. He said, you put it together right out here so at least when the people come in here, they'll see the sign on the side of your trailer. And it, the race is a half a mile down the road to the track, but the gate's way out here. So we're out here at the gate putting it together and all the racers come in. And I'll never forget Perdomi. He come and he walked around this thing and looked at it. He said, well, that's one way to get publicity. In other words, if you can't race anymore, just do something crazy, right? So he goes down to the, to the, to the pits, and uh, all the racers get together, and they say, what's going to happen up there? And they said, well, you know what's going to happen. It's going to be fast because the guy goes fast. He says, you're going to be beside him in the track, and that's going to turn right or left. He might just drive right into you. What are we going to do? <laughs> they said, well, there's only one thing we can do. we got to boycott it. He said, we got to 100%. We've got to stick together now because this is, we're talking about life or death. If he races, we don't race. Now, they can't run this race with him. they got to have us. Okay, let's go talk to Mr. Hart. That was the track manager, Peppy Hart. And, and they had just had a bad crash with a engine car there about two weeks before, and the guy was still over in the Pacific Coast Hospital. And so he was tickled to death to see them not wanting me to race. And then they went to Tice. And, of course, Tice was different. He was like the Barnum and Bailey of drag racing. He wasn't so much concerned whether the trapeze artist fell to the ground as long as his tent was full, yeah. see? <laughs> That's right. And, and so, and he says, boys, he says, I got a better idea. He says, how about this? We make Garlitz do every qualifying pass. There's going to be four qualifying runs. He has to run every one, and he has to make full runs. If on any one of those four runs, it touches the outer barrier line or the center line, he's in the trailer and goes home. Now, in the unlikely event that he makes the four runs and he doesn't touch the barrier lines and he qualifies, would you race him on Sunday? And it was total quiet. And they never will tell me who said this because I'd probably be mad at him because this guy says, yeah, we'll race him on Sunday because the SOB won't be here. Nobody's going to make four runs in a rear-engine car and go fast enough to qualify and not crash. He'll probably be either dead over in the Pacific Coast Hospital and we'll be shed of him. Good, that's a good idea, Jim. And so I made all my qualifying runs singles. 
and I qualified third in the field, and I didn't touch the barrier lines, <laughs> and they had to race me. And I went all the way to the finals, and, the, and we're, I've been sitting in the same lane at the same track at the same time of day as the transmission exploded 12 months before. And the light went yellow green, and just for a moment I saw that terrible explosion. And then it cleared up, and I looked out, and the guy was about like that on me. And I, I run right up on him. I almost got him, but he, he outrun me. It was close. But that didn't happen anymore after that. I went to Pomona. I won the Winter Nationals. I went to Bakersfield and won the U.S. Fuel and Gas Championships, and the party was over. Which party was over? For them? The slingshot. Oh, the party for the Six slingshot. Six months later, there was only one slingshot running, Jim, John Weeby. He was the last one to give it up. He just hated it so bad. Well, Ryan, one of the things I was going to say is that it's amazing is that, you know, Don, we're still talking in the 70s. You know, it's in 2023. He's still racing. You know, he, he's still trying to beat the electric speed rate, uh, record right now. And, uh, he the electric awesome. speed record. Yeah. What's that look like? So wait, so you're building a um, a drag car, a dragster that will be electric? I have an electric dragster, two of them. Now, I, the, the electric cars like the Teslas, you go drive those, they have so much torque right yeah. out of the gate. It's amazing. Yes. How do they do speed-wise? you think you can make an electric? Well, my electric dragster, when I, when I got involved in, in 2014, uh, the record was 156 miles an hour for an electric dragster. And my car quickly raised it to 174, and then 178, 184, and 185. That was Swamp Rat 37, a pretty heavy car, 2,300 pounds, but mostly batteries. Of course, the battery technology silent? changed, you know, somewhat. And so I built a new car which weighed in at 1,500 pounds, and I raised that record then quickly to 189 on a practice run, low voltage, and I went to make the next run, which I thought would be over 200, and it broke a hub. Uh, everything's homemade. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'd been using this welding rod for years and years. It was called a Eutectic 680, a really fine rod for putting two metals together that you weren't sure about the metallurgy of the two metals, and it's, it just sheared that weld, and I was really surprised. I run a file across it, and it was like butter, and we didn't know that. It really took me by surprise. I called it the welding company, and they says they had had some trouble with it since they outsourced it to China, and so they just weren't making rods. So then by the time we got that all fixed, I got COVID, and that COVID thing hit, and our drag strips were all shut down. And in the meantime, then a guy in Spokane went 200 with his electric dragster. And that kind of, I don't know, after the 200 was achieved, I didn't think much about it. I, I let it, I let the project kind of slide. Plus, I, I had some post-COVID problems that, you know, I was dealing with. It's a, a lot of things happen to you after you have that. I, I had a balance problem. My hearing got worse. And uh, I was more concerned with my health issues than I was. But recently, I've, plus then I also had had a bad battery fire. The lithium batteries are, 
are bad news and uh, had this bad battery fire. But anyway, I got the Swamp Rat 38 then back out and I was went down to West Palm Beach and, and I had everything primed up. I thought it would run around 210 miles an hour and the battery caught fire in a burnout, this brand new battery. And they had a hard time dealing with it on the track and that just really got me upset. And plus the NHRA didn't like it either. They were upset about that too. So anyway, the current situation is the motor has been sent to Texas to be dynoed, and then they're going to tell me just exactly what I need for a battery for it. And um, there's this new battery company that has this, I don't know whether you've ever heard of them, a quantum glass. That's a brand-new battery technology that doesn't use any poisonous stuff like the lithium. And in other words, it will be the battery of the future if they get it going. And uh, and you could you could shoot a bullet through it and it wouldn't catch on fire. Wow! And so that's what I want, and and so they're waiting for me to give them the specs, on what I need for power, and then they'll try to build me this quantum glass battery, which will be much cleaner and safer, and and I'll get back on this project. I would really like to run around two hundred and fifteen miles an hour before I give it up. I mean it. it I'd never bet against you. After everything I've heard, I mean, you've just run through obstacle after obstacle. So, Mark, you guys are working on a movie project. Yes. What does that story look like? I mean, the, 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 Don's stories are vast. And yeah, he's got 70 years. 70 years of racing. Plus. So what, do you, is it going to be a documentary? Is it going to be well, we're, a live feature? We're looking at a, a feature film mm -hmm. that, uh, you know, some of the people that I've worked with, with Chris Ledoux and uh, Sante White. Actually, Chris is going to be involved. I hope maybe you might want to get involved. Mm -hmm. and, um, and then also, um, so it'll probably be more about the story of his life. We'll have a storyline, kind of like how um, Ford versus Ferrari was. That's right. When I was listening to his stories, I could, all I could think about was Ford versus yeah. Ferrari. So it'll be it'll be something that has true content about his life, and then uh, hopefully we can do like a, a docu uh, drama series, maybe on Netflix. Maybe we can do six to ten, you know, series out of that. Mm -hmm. You know, it would be more about the detail and so forth. Kind of like you see how the Formula One uh, mm -hmm. racing has been currently, and uh, and so with having him uh, be involved still, and you know, that was just beautiful to listen to all these stories. I mean, he's got so many stories; it's amazing. And it's very important for Don to be able to make sure that we tell it's about truly about his life, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. And so that's one of the things that we're working on. And we're doing an event today at the uh, Buckhead 50s. It's a, it's a group of um, older gentlemen that's been here for a number of years. We've got some potential investors that will be there as well. Just uh, as you know how the industry works, it's always trying to get some people involved. And so Don came up here this time, you know, to uh, – Pre-COVID, we worked on this for a minute, and and uh, COVID kind of threw everything for a loop. But we're like back in traction right now, trying to get you know pick up the pieces and move forward and go a thousand miles an hour as best as we can. I think it's fantastic. I'm, when I think of like the way Ford versus Ferrari came together, and you start thinking about like the kind of stories, the overarching story of a movie let's say or like a you know something longer but let's say it was a movie and I, I could just see that scene already of you talking to the Kentucky bootleggers right 
I mean, it's such a beautiful story of wanting real competition, loyalty, these guys like wanting to back you, but then like being so moved when you say, no, 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 I want to win. There's, there's interesting. I, uh, I, never, I go to my grave for that because this was a tough guy. He's still alive. <laughs> Every time I see him, we, we just hug each other. It's unbelievable. Don, when I was says, big daddy, that's why you're my hero. <laughs> Tears run down. That's, that's like the apex of the movie for me. When big I, when daddy, I, you're I my went hero. Down, you'll appreciate this, Ryan. When I went down to go see Don, this was a, a little over a year ago, a year and a half ago. Um, we went down and got saw some of his properties and so forth. And we spent some time at the museum. But his first time that he was ever like in fire, and Don, you can say this is when your dad took you out of the when the house caught on fire and you were taken out of the cradle. You want me to tell him that story? Yeah, because that's I well, think that be like, I mean you have a long life that'd, history. That'd be a good interesting intro to with the fire. <laughs> yeah, right. Right. I mean, yeah, a lot. I was christened with fire at an early age. My my mom and dad come down from Trenton, New Jersey. In 1927, they was run out of New Jersey for practicing medicine without a license. He had a health food store, and the people would come in after. And not, you know, medicine was in its in 1927 was not what it is today. And they did all kind of crazy stuff, you know, in those days. And my dad would say, "You just gotta eat right and get some exercise." And they just had all this white flour and sugar. And he said, that's poison. He says, the only reason they did all that was so the bugs wouldn't eat it. And he said, if the bugs wouldn't eat it, you shouldn't eat it. Whole wheat bread, brown sugar, fresh vegetables. And and most of it was women that were overweight that, that had the most trouble, you know, because they're at home, they have the least. That, the men work so damn hard, you know, with the physical labor in those days. But now the men are in the same shape because we don't have a lot of physical labor anymore. We have to have gyms and stuff. So anyway, these people would, would, would get better, and the American Medical Association just hated it. So they cook him into court and run him out of the state of New Jersey. For running a health food store? Yeah, no, practicing medicine without a license. The judge says to my father, says, you can't tell a person to take a drink of water without a medical degree. Wow. And so my dad had heard that Florida was kind of open country, you know, like no no law west of the Pecos, you know, deal. And, uh, and it was with just dirt roads and all down there at the time. And so mom and him drove down, and they, they, they sold a health food store, got a lot of money for it, and came down with a nice bundle of cash, and we were buying up property, and they bought a nice home on Bayshore Boulevard, and that's where I was born. And this in 29, the stock market failed, but that didn't affect down in Florida. The banks and all were still okay, but in 32, the banks failed. And my dad goes over to the bank, to get some money in Lakeland and his big boards nailed across the door and a little note on it said, we went to the Cayman Islands with the money, whatever was left in the bank. See? Wow. And my, and my dad never recovered from that. He hated banks till the day he died. And so anyway, they had one little piece of property that was on this bottomland in Fisher Farms off of the Falkenberg Road, which that... The Interstate 75 goes through that property now. 
and they had they and they had a guy living in this little one room cabin, him and his wife, and they were like sharecropping it. And my dad would uh, they he was going to sell the vegetables and all out of there in his health food store, and they lost all that. So my dad and mom drive out there, and they said, we got to move in here with you. This is the only place we got to go. And, of course, that was a big fight about that and had the, the little baby with them, you know. So here was two couples, young couples, living in a one-room cabin with a little baby, and you can imagine the turmoil that that cost. And, uh, and my, of course, my dad wanted them to leave, you know, because he owned the property. And... Uh, and the guy didn't want to leave because where was he going to go? You know, it, it was hard times for everybody. So my dad was running his peddling route, selling the vegetables, taking them into town to the nice section of town. And uh, he come home this one afternoon, and my mom was down in the in the garden, and he went down there where she's at, and she she says, "Be nice. They're they're up there packing. They're going to leave." And so he just stay right here and leave them alone. And so they see the Model T drive out the front front of the property and down the dirt road, and uh, and the smoke starts billowing out of the windows. They'd poured kerosene all around in the house and set it on fire and went out the front door. And the baby in there in the crib, that's me. So mom and dad, my, my mother sees, sees the smoke and she says, oh my God, the baby. And boy, they bolt for the house. And my mom was quite a bit younger than my dad. She was 20 and he was like 38. And she outran him to the back door and she grabs the back door and they had latched it. They had a little deadbolt on the inside and she pulled it. She couldn't get it open. And my dad, he was really good on his thinking. He, he had been a Westinghouse engineer. He was on the team that invented the electric iron and the electric fan. But he left Westinghouse because of health reasons that Pittsburgh wasn't fit to live in in those days. And um, he knew there wasn't any time to struggle with that door, and they probably lodged it anyway. So he ran around the front, and by the time he got to the front door, it was just flames, a wall of flames. He ran right through that and into the, the crib right in there, and it had mosquito netting all over the crib, and they, they said that the, the, the net was already catching on fire and falling down into my face. And I carried those cars to high school before they went away. And he grabbed me up, and he had on a World War I wool jacket. And he wrapped me in that jacket and ran back through the flames at the front door and burned all the hair off of him, burned him seriously, and tossed the, the bundle to my mother. And she immediately unwrapped it, laid me on the ground, and then beat the flames out on his clothes with the jacket. And I, I think back, and, and the way they described it all to me, I'll bet you that less than 30 seconds decided everything there. How old were you at the time? Three months. Three months. Yeah. Wow. March of 1932. A, we actually have a three-month-old in the house right now. My son. Three months. He's, he's, he's going to be three months on... April 18th, which is, I don't know, what are the limit? That's in, in a week. So in a week, he'll be three months. So I know exactly what a three-month-old looks like, helpless. And, and so your dad gets you out of there. 
and if it's not for 30 seconds of decision-making. Yeah, if he, had, if he had went to that back door and tried to get it with Mom, he'd have never made it in the front. He made it went in, but he'd have never got out. So we're kind of looking at the intro of the, of the film of showing that, you know, as Don is being young, a baby, first time in fire, all these, you know, uh, ter- you know cr- crazy uh, accidents on driving the vehicles, blowing up and all that kind of stuff. It's a little kind of segue, but it's a, a very interesting intro, you know, to how his life began, always with fire to a degree. <laughs> Well, I'm, I'm imagining, you know, fire throughout the film, right? Because you have the yeah. fire billowing out of these giant engines. I mean, when you go right. to these drag races, it's just... You know, these little houses were just pine wood, and they were seasoned. And I mean, they were just like a tinderbox. Tinderbox. Mm-hmm. Exactly right. So what happened to that fan, the other people? Like, they, they, they obviously they, set this on fire. They, they, yeah, they put... The, the can was right there because empty... They'd, they'd taken the can from the kerosene stove and dumped it all in the house and set it on fire. Right, but did, did they, anybody hunt them down? They should I mean, have went to jail, you know. But, 100%. But they never got them. They never got them. It was a different era. You know, people did wild things, got got away but with them. But, you know, you, they didn't have any way of tracking people in those days. They could just go down the street and change their name. There was no Social Security card or nothing yet. Yeah, right. Well, Don, what a privilege it's been to have you on the program. The stories are fantastic. Well, I appreciate being here. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it, too. Um, you know, maybe we'll do something again. We'll come down to Ocala, and yeah, I'd love to see the be museum. great. I'd love to set that up. We could go down there. Yeah, we, 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 we'd love to do that trip. Yeah, well, now sometime it's big. You'll enjoy it. Uh, 65,000 square feet of drag racers and other cars sounds like a, a day well spent for sure. Yeah, we have a, an antique building that traces the automobile back to the 1800s. Really? Like you have, some, you have a, you have a history the of the automobiles? I love that. So, so what's your earliest car? It's, it's an 1800... Um, um, we, it, it, it participated... I'm gonna try. I'm trying to think of the name. It's a funny name. It's uh, it's made. It's a wooden chassis. Mm-hmm. It has two engines on it because it was the only vehicle left in the world that participated in the first Washington Hill climb up in the New England states. Wow, and then and then it started. But you've got like old Fords and old even the whole history of the automobile. Yeah, it, we got them all the way back into the. 1800 and the ni- early 1900s is mostly this one is the only one that's uh i would say he probably has an easy 200 plus or more cars there non-racing cars yeah. Oh, well, yeah i mean like all i mean everything you can possibly imagine well i can't wait to see him i've, I've been in some very very cool race museums over the years um it's a buckboard that's what it is they call it a buckboard a buckboard it's you got a teller to steer it. Gentlemen, what a privilege. Appreciate you being here. Thanks for doing this. Thank Thank you you so much. This has been the Black Hall Podcast. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Thanks for listening.